It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Witchcraft in Early Modern England with Professor Darren Aldridge. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Today we have an interview with Professor Darren Aldridge, one of my favourite lecturers from my undergraduate and the inspiration for the History of Witchcraft podcast many years later. Fair warning, I interviewed him over the phone with a microphone pointed at my mobile, so the sound quality isn't fantastic, but it came out much better than I feared it would. I've boosted the volume and cleared up some of the background noise as well. In the first few minutes, you'll hear me fiddle around with the setup because I decided that that was the best time to start arranging things, but all that clears up after a minute or so. Without further ado, please enjoy. I'm very happy to welcome Darren Aldridge, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Worcester. Professor Aldridge has published on many different aspects of early modern folklore and popular belief, from the devil, fairies, and of course witchcraft. Professor Aldridge has consulted for several television and radio programs, but listeners of the history of witchcraft may have special reason to recall his name. Not only have I referred to several of his works in the past, particularly the Witchcraft Reader, which is now in its third edition, but his lectures inspired me to choose witchcraft and supernatural beliefs as the topic of my first podcast. So it's only fitting that he joins me here today. Professor Aldridge, thank you for joining me. Hello, sir. Let's start off with a nice easy question. What was it that first appealed to you about... English folklore and supernatural belief. What made you want to study it as your career? Oh, that's not an easy question at all. <laughs> I started my career long ago in the 1980s when I was studying the religious context of the English Civil War. 
And I've always seen myself really as a religious historian primarily, or a historian of belief, to be more precise. And I stumbled upon the devil at some point in the late 1990s and began to think and to write about the devil and discovered quite soon that there was a fairly limited existing scholarly literature and there was a vast amount of largely unvisited source material that I could look at and consequently I suspect that my lifetime and, and many lifetimes would not be sufficient to discover and to think and to, to write and to say all that I could about the devil even in 17th century England. It is a fathomless project and because of that enormous depth of material and until quite recently the limited number of scholars who are spending time with it and thinking about these things, I find that the devil calls me back and calls me back. Whenever I want to do something else, the devil tugs at my sleeve because there is always more to discover. I am beginning to ask the questions. Uh, I, I think scholarship on the devil, not only in England in the 17th century, but across many different times and periods, has still seriously to be written. But there is so much potentially that uh, we need to think and say about the devil. You mentioned witchcraft at the start, Sam, and, and witchcraft is one of those areas of scholarship in which there is considerable activity and a great deal of scholarly publication, and indeed there's lots of non-scholarly work going on all the time. But the devil, who was one small part of some witch place has by comparison been very largely neglected by academics and yet at the time of witch trials people typically regarded witchcraft as one fairly small part of the devil's activity, certainly not his main part, certainly not the most important thing that the devil was doing. Um, but we, all these hundreds of years later, tend to focus on witchcraft uh, at the expense of rather more important uh, ways in which people thought about the devil at the time that witches were put on trial. So that's just one small example, I think, of how academic research tends to cluster in particular mm. areas. Some things seem to be more appealing, sexier than others. And for some curious reason, witchcraft seems to be tremendously popular and always will be, I suspect, that the devil, much less so, although I hope that that is changing. And it does seem to have changed in the last several years in which I've been working in this area. But always there will be more questions, because the devil was so tremendously important to people in the past, and they wrote so much about him, and they thought and they feared the devil in so many complex and interesting ways, that the traces of that world of devil belief are innumerable. And uh, as I said, many scholars could devote many lifetimes to exploring <laughs> this territory, and I'm only really just setting out. Going back to you, you, you mentioned just before that 
you're you've looked quite a lot at the English context of the English Civil Wars, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. And in Pax Britannica, the the narrative has reached Charles's personal rule, and trying not to just, you know, rush to the the outbreak of violence because it's a it's yeah. it's, ten, it's ten plus years all on its own. It's it's fascinating, but there's this constant background debate going on religiously, and I wondered if you could possibly explain. I struggle to comprehend the differences between all the various different uh, religious views at the time. I wonder if you could explain yeah. very simply, very broadly, the differences between Anglicans or conformists, um, the hotter sort of Protestants, and uh, the, the dreaded Arminians. Right. Um, I, I think the way to think about religious conflict before the Civil War is really to focus not so much on what people believed, although that's relevant, of course, mm-hmm. but much more on the implications of church policy. And here I think you can detect some really important divisions within the Church of England, particularly in the reign of Charles I, and particularly, I think, after around 1635. What is happening in the Church in this period is the imposition of what its enemies described as formalism. And formalism meant an emphasis upon ritual, mm-hmm. upon respectful behaviour in church expressed through various, it seems today perhaps quite petty insistences on things like kneeling to receive the Eucharist and from 1635, in many places, asking people to come to the altar rails to kneel to receive the Eucharist. Mm. And these new emphases to those English Protestants who had grown up in a culture that distrusted, at best, religious formality of mm-hmm. this sort, and was inclined to view ceremony with some distaste. These introductions were the source of anxiety and resistance and complaint. People most crudely sometimes perceived a kind of creeping Roman Catholicism Mm. within the Church of England, expressed through this new emphasis on ritual and the formalities of worship. And at the same time, the churches were redecorated Mm -hmm. and communion tables were removed to the east end and in many cases elevated and, and often railed off and treated as altars instead of mere tables. At the same time as this, there was, I think, a quite well-sustained attempt to crack down on various forms of often quite petty Protestant nonconformity. Things like people gadding from their parish to go and hear sermons in neighbouring parishes which they were not supposed to do, but 
previously these things had not typically landed people in trouble with the court. And the insistence on perhaps quite petty um, aspects of ritual that previously had been neglected Mm -hmm. because they were not regarded as especially important within the services of the English church. These things really annoyed many zealous English Protestants at exactly the same time that they could see their parish churches being turned into places that resembled rather more than they would like Catholic places of worship. But I think it was it was that combination of formalism within the church mm-hmm. which turned communion tables into something rather suspiciously like altar. Um, and also this quite real attempt to impose uniformity during the 1630s. Those things combined, and they created the impression among many godly English Protestants that the bishops of the English church, and particularly the leaders of the English church, from especially 1635, I think, after that date, mm-hmm. uh, I think these troubles are really marked, the perception arose that the leaders of the church were not always to be trusted with the best interests of what godly English Protestants perceived as true religion. So I, I think it is that area of churchmanship, the insistence upon uniformity and the redecoration and the reconfiguration of parish churches, that really rankled. That, that's what annoyed godly English Protestants mm. and drove so many into opposition against what they perceived to be ungodly innovation imposed unwanted from above. And I think if you focus on those things, it's much easier to understand what's going on in the 1630s than if you worry too much about finer points of theology and talk about Armenianism and, and doctrines like predestination. That these things are germane, but I think what really matters are these issues of churchmanship that I've described. That's a really interesting perspective on it. England is is quite noticeable. It's quite notable how relatively few and far between which panics on the scale of as nearby as Scotland um, and certainly Germany and other parts of continental Europe. There's very, very few. I mean, you have the Witchfinder General outbreak during the English Civil Wars, and you have you have Salem, uh, which you can consider English, and um, the Lancashire Witch Trials and the Pendle Trials and all of this. But other than that, there's not much. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on possible reasons. Now, obviously, that's a huge question. Uh, but possible reasons why that is. Okay, I'll, it is a huge question, and my answer will... <laughs> necessarily be uh, quite uh, sweeping. But but I'll suggest two broad reasons. One reason is that in England, typically, allegations of witchcraft tended to focus on harm, and most often harm against the person. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, perhaps, witchcraft did not become a religious crime in the way that some scholars have suggested was the case 
in Scotland and in some parts of German-speaking um, mainland Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'd say is that the English legal system was comparatively um, insulated against the kinds of large-scale witch panics that you're describing elsewhere. Um, partly because witchcraft, when it was treated as a serious offence, was one of those crimes that was dealt with by Azai's courts, typically near to, but not actually within the community where the alleged offence took place. Mm. And also presided over in the main by crown appointed justices who were by and large by early modern standards quite scrupulous in their interpretation of evidence. And witchcraft always was a difficult crime to prove. So when the justice system was applied with scrupulous regard for evidence, it was really quite difficult to bring conviction. And I suspect that England, where there was, by European standards, a quite centralised justice system, was the sort of region where big-scale witch panics were less likely to happen because of the apparatus that I've described. And it could be telling that the one example everyone knows of, where (laughs) there was this really quite extensive um, series of of witch prosecutions, mainly in 1645, 1646, in the Eastern County, these happened when that traditional apparatus had broken down, of course, during the English Civil Wars. Mm. Um, So I I think that the the answers to your question include the way that in England, perhaps, religion was not the driving force behind allegations of witchcraft. It was not really a religious crime in quite the same way, perhaps, in Scotland or in other parts of Europe. And also, the fairly centralised and quite careful judicial oversight of the process of witchcraft allegations. Those two things, I suspect, help to explain why relatively few people were tried and those that were tried in most cases were either acquitted or they escaped with their lives. And that leads me to another question because this is a theory that I've heard and I sadly cannot remember where I've read it um, and you may know um, but there's a theory that the, the, the Puritan elite for lack of a better term um, were more interested in uh, prosecuting a a wide-ranging witch hunt and they were frustrated at the royal and official restraint that was shown i think there's there's a case um one of the one of the halifaxes sends a lot of angry letters because uh the justice is not taking it seriously and there's this theory or, or argument that this played a role some big or small in the not just the breakdown between uh king and parliament but also when that breakdown occurred the, especially in the eastern counties, um, the the conflagration that occurred there. I'm, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I would be cautious 
in identifying the zealous prosecution of witchcraft with any particular faction mm-hmm. within the English church. Yes, you can find people who you might identify as godly among those advocating the strictest penalty against witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And William Perkins is an obvious example of this in the uh, very late 16th century. But equally, you, you can find plenty of people also from that godly wing of the church who were very cautious about, in their view, fueling superstition Mm. by encouraging or even permitting people to make allegations of witchcraft. And from a little bit earlier in Essex, in the 1580s and 1590s, George Gifford was one of these people. And then a little bit later at the time of the much more serious uh, outbreak of which um, allegation in East Anglia in 1645-46, it was John Gall mm. who opposed Hopkins. And, and Gall, on matters of religion, sort of broadly belongs within the the godly community, mm-hmm. it seems to me. So there is that tradition of caution, and you might say judicial, judicial scepticism among those folk you might describe as English Puritans, in contrast to other people belonging to that similar wing of the church who have advocated a more robust and mm. aggressive attack on witchcraft. So I'm not sure that you can line up Puritans on one side and anti-Puritans or non-Puritans on the other in cases of witchcraft. That, that doesn't seem quite to, to fit the evidence, as I see it anyway. Um, and and the, the other thing I'd, I'd say that, that relates to that is that in England, there is, I think, at least in demonological writing, all the way from Reginald Scott in the 1580s through to the end of the 17th century, there is a strong emphasis upon a providential understanding of bad magic. That mm-hmm. bad magic was understood when it did happen, if it could be proven, often as a token of divine dis- displeasure against the person who had the misfortune to suffer from whatever affliction God in his wisdom had permitted, which is to, um, to to press upon them. And the proper godly response to this, again and again, English demonologists insisted, was not to accuse others of witchcraft and to seek remedy in that way, but to look to yourself and to ask, well, why is it that I am being visited with affliction, hmm. albeit through witchcraft? And so I think there's an inward-looking tendency within English demonological writing that broadly discouraged allegations of witchcraft and was rather 
suspicious of the world in which these allegations took place because, of course, it was a world of magic. Mm. Many of those involved in seeking witches in England were cunning folk. And the idea of seeking magical remedies against witchcraft was clearly um, disapproved of by the godly in mm-hmm. England. Um, and more broadly, I think, that there was a reluctance among many English Protestants, including the hotter sort, to do anything to encourage people to make allegations of witchcraft. And the one exception to this, I think, is the concerns of some English Protestant thinkers about witchcraft as an offence against God. So, William Perkins, to give a, a strong example, regards witchcraft as primarily an offence um, of a religious nature. It, it, is, it is an offence that um, is forbidden in Scripture and should be prosecuted for that reason as one of those offences that men and women can commit against God. He's much less interested in the supposed harm that witches are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is actually consistent across English demonology through the whole period of witch trial. And that emphasis on witchcraft really is, is something that should not be... Um, alleged in order to relieve misfortune cumulatively had the effect I suspect of discouraging prosecution I'm not sure, I may change my mind about this but (laughs) but I don't think that by and large godly English Protestants were inclined to pursue witchcraft and when they were inclined to pursue witchcraft it was as a crime against God rather than a crime committed by a witch against their neighbours. They're much less worried about that aspect Mm. of witchcraft, it seems to me. And in many cases, they actually are reluctant to promote those kinds of allegations of magical harm. Fascinating. So, you you spoke then mainly about, let's say, elite debates around it. But how did witches appear, and witches and witchcraft and, and superstition and beliefs around it, how did that appear in the popular press, in in on the stage, in poetry, in my ever-loved broadside ballads, which I remember very fondly from undergraduate in many of your courses? Yeah. How, did, how did witchcraft appear in things designed for public consumption? Very often in ways that departed from the writings of learned demonologist. Mm-hmm. I was seeking another word instead of demonologist then, but I, I had to return to the familiar word. Uh, but it's a word, uh, I think, that needs to be expanded, actually, because when people thought about the devil, as I've said before, they were not mainly thinking about witchcraft. They were mm-hmm. mainly thinking about lots of other things. Witchcraft is one small aspect of what we might think of as demonology. But I'll return to your question. Uh, when people read about witchcraft in ballads or cheap pamphlets, the focus of these texts tended to be on acts 
of magical harm. Mm-hmm. And also, curiously, the witches involved, almost without exception, produced their harmful effects through the agency of what we might think of as familiar spirits. Mm. Um, but that really is a, a use of biblical language, it seems to me, um, that may not have resonated with the people he, he believed in witches, spirits. Um, they're described variously in the literature as imps or sprites or puckles, sometimes as familiars. Mm. Uh, and these creatures don't fit very well, it seems to me, into learned demonological discourses, because they were often small animals, cats or hares or monstrous little creatures that skittered about. And they seem to be prevalent. They seem to be part of popular understanding of witchcraft in England. There seems to have been a quite well-established and stable set of beliefs associated with the activities of these noxious creatures. But they don't fit particularly well with the demonological idea of the witch entering a compact with the devil in order to renounce God and to do harm mm. against their neighbours. Uh, these things don't fit well, it seems to me. <laughs> I, I put it there more strongly than that. So, so there is a interesting and I think quite marked that can be identified between the ways in which people thought in orthodox theological terms about witchcraft involving the devil and the way that ordinary people perhaps imagined witchcraft and feared witchcraft. And one notable marker of this distinction, I think, is the activity of these nasty little spirits that were associated with witches and which appear to have belonged to the world of village allegations of witchcraft, but fitted at best awkwardly mm. within learned demonology. So just as we uh, we bring this lovely chat to a close, I wonder if you could share what you, what you personally find to be your biggest pet peeve in popular ideas about witchcraft. What is it that people get wrong that's really annoying to you? Oh, my... My peeve about popular understanding of witchcraft is, I think, my same peeve about popular understanding of history more generally, mm-hmm. which is the tendency sometimes for people to imagine that the past was somehow simpler than the present mm. and populated by people who were not as bright as we are. Yeah. That particular mistake is pronounced perhaps when people talk about witchcraft um, and expressed in the very common tendency to explain genuine and often quite rational anxieties that people once had about witchcraft and how to deal with the crime in terms of irrationality, 
superstition or malice. Mm. Uh, the tendency often in popular representations at least is to imagine that somehow people who were fearful of witches were really fearful of other things instead. Mm. Or they were suffering from delusion or they were only pretending to be afraid of witches and really their motives were more um, to, to do with greed or, or political advancement or, or whatever. Uh, because we find it very hard to imagine a world in which most people accepted the reality of good and bad magic and therefore magical crimes seem to us to require some sort of special explanation that we would not require if we were talking about crimes that we believe in today, mm. things that we believe to be possible. Um, and often people reach that explanation that suggests that really it was other things that were behind these these allegations. They, they weren't really scared of witches, they were on the make, or they if they were afraid of witches they were deluded or they were irrational, or they were taking drugs or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, so th those sorts of things are, are a little bit peeving. Um, and I think the most common expression of that particular, I think, wrong view of witchcraft is, is the idea that people accused of witchcraft sometimes were ducked in water, and if they were innocent, they were allowed to drown, and if they were guilty, they were hauled out of the river and then convicted of witchcraft. And that's mad. Yeah. And it assumes that people really were that crazy. That, I have to admit, is my pers the top one that really, really annoys me when I see it, especially online. It's just... Yeah. People weren't <laughs> stupid. It, it, it's and, it's uh, mad. Yeah, and, and I think it encapsulates the tendency to assume that the people who are doing this were a bit crazy. Mm. And in this particular example, that the historical truth behind it is that people were very aware of the difficulty of proving an offence that was invisible. Yeah. In which often one person's belief or one person's word had to be measured against another. And there was no way to arrive at a definite outcome. But at the same time, the crime, if real, was too serious to ignore. So in situations like that, I think it's quite understandable that where it was available, people would resort to appeals to divine judgment, which ultimately is what the water ordeal was. It was a way of finding certainty in what people understood to be mm -hmm. extraordinarily difficult and hard to prove and yet impossible to ignore cases. Yes, but we've turned that into an example of crazy people doing crazy things, <laughs> uh, which encapsulates one particular strand of misunderstanding about witchcraft, I think. So, so that would be my peeve. But, but it's, it's really part of a much 
more general annoyance that, that I suspect is not confined <laughs> to me, but many historians also may share. Simply that often the past is presented as somehow simpler than today, and the people in it are somehow less reasonable. But a moment's reflection demonstrates that is an absurd proposition. But but it is one that I think consciously or more often unconsciously people slip into enough to make me feel a little bit peeved about it. But <laughs> I don't complain much, and uh, I'm actually very happy to be doing the job that I'm doing, and, and very privileged to to be in the position to uh, think and write and spend time talking to people like you about these things. Yes. So I've not got so many things that feed me. <laughs> but there are always things to find out. Aren't that's and, always and that's true. one of the consequences of the complexities of the past. We could spend a lifetime wondering and exploring, um, wondering about and exploring the, the mysteries of our own time. And of course, the past is just the same. Yeah. But the difference is that we, we rely upon often patchy evidence and sometimes no evidence at all. So it's difficult to, to do history that holds on to that sense of complexity, I guess. And it's very understandable that outside university history departments, so often people are tempted to, to simplify um, mm. and uh, perhaps to, to get things wrong. But uh, as I say, I'm very glad to be... Uh, paid to do this and I have no complaints at all. <laughs> well I know from personal experience you are very good at your job. Um, so oh, before we leave kind. off, if any of my listeners would like to read some of your work, um, is there anything you would recommend? Uh, everyone I think always likes the most recent thing that they've done. So <laughs> in that spirit I would suggest anyone interested in the rationality behind beliefs and actions in the past that today seem very strange and perhaps a bit crazy, I would advise to look at Strange History, the second edition of which was published last year. Good choice. It's a personal favourite. more recently, the book that I wrote on the supernatural, um, called The Supernatural in Tudor and Stuart England, published in 2016. That is one I will have to pick up because I have. That's one I confess I have not re yet read, but I definitely will. I hope that some answers to your questions are inside the pages of, of those two books. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Darren, for coming on. Um, hopefully, I'll have you on in the future. Thank you very much, Sam, and uh, good luck with the podcast and uh, your life in Scotland. <laughs> thank you very much. To us. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. 
I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.